We're continuing through uh, the Gospel of Luke. All right, Luke chapter 20, verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would um, give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat him and, or beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third servant, yet a third servant, and he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Uh, Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you are with us this morning. As we go through this parable, Lord, pray that uh, the, the truths that are here, Lord, are here, heard clearly, that your word is highlighted, Lord. Um, guard my lips, Lord, from, from anything that's not found in your word, Lord. And just pray that you're with us, Lord. Open our hearts to your truth, Lord. Uh, I pray that the Spirit just uh, um, breaks down any bar- barriers, Lord, that would stop us from hearing you this morning. In your Son's name, amen. It's the first time, I think this first time I've got to preach on a parable here. Uh, Sunday morning, I've preached on a lot with the the high schoolers, and I love teaching and preaching parables, Uh, partly because I am not good at uh, making up illustrations. That's one of the most stressful things I do when I'm getting ready for a sermon, is trying to figure out a good story to illustrate Um, and you, all, you guys all know those people that are really good at telling stories, right? I am definitely not one of them. Uh, I remember growing up, kind of uh, would visit the Bear Valley Youth Group a lot. And back then, Kevin Bosler, who's now the senior pastor over at Bear Valley, was the youth pastor. And that guy can make up stories. I, I mean, he would pull stories left and right. And I was more amazed by stories than anything else. Um, I have three stories that I cycle through. Ask your, ask your high schoolers. They could recite them to you, I'm pretty sure. Um, but the nice thing about a parable that that it is a story. It is an illustration, right? It's a story. This story has vineyards, a landowner, has tenants. Um, and, and Jesus is an amazing storyteller. And the nice thing about, about parables, the stories uh, that are found in parables, is that they all have a spiritual lesson that's behind them. Right? Parable stories actually really just kind of teach themselves. All I have to do is get up here, explain the context, explain some of the historical background, and the parable really just kind of preaches itself. So it makes my job really easy. So let's just jump into it. We need to, if you want to understand this parable, we've got to understand the context of this parable, and it's what we've been going over the last few weeks. Right? Last week we, we, we said it was Tuesday. It's still Tuesday in your scripture of the Passover week. 
meaning Sunday, a few days earlier, was the triumphal entry to Jerusalem, where Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt like a king. And Luke 19, verse 36, tells us that the crowds spread um, their cloaks on the road. This was a sign of complete submission to the king's authority, complete submission to Jesus' authority. And the crowds there were rejoicing as Jesus came into Jerusalem, shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're actually quoting a psalm as they were seeing it. It was a, it was a um, messianic psalm, meaning they were saying, You are the Messiah. You are the king we've been waiting for. And of course, the religious leaders of this time were upset by this. Luke 19.39 says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. How dare you let them call you king or even Messiah? But Jesus doesn't back down at all. Verse 40, he answers, I tell you, if these, these people, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. That was Sunday, and Monday Jesus comes in and cleanses the temple. Mark eleven fifteen says he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who uh, uh, bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers. Right? He comes in and he attacks the temple and what was going on in the temple. And Luke nineteen forty five says he and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, "It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers." He attacks, really, the heart and pride of Jerusalem. Specifically, he attacks the religious leaders and the religious system of the day. And in doing so, he claimed authority over the temple. And the religious leaders hated him for this. Luke 19.47 says, And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men and the people were seeking to destroy him. By the time Tuesday comes around, there's this growing hostility towards Jesus, especially from the religious elite. They wanted to know where Jesus got his authority from or where did he claim to get this authority from. And last week we talked about this in Luke 20, verse 2. And he said to them, to him, right? This is what the the religious leader said to him. Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? In other words, who gave you this authority? This week we spent uh, um, the sermon talking about why that was a dumb question, at least at this point in the Gospels. It was obvious that Jesus had divine authority. This is the end of his ministry. And Jesus has proven his divine authority and authority from God over and over and over again by performing miracle and miracle and miracle. Jesus' authority was obvious to everyone. And we learned last week that the religious leaders didn't question Jesus' authority because it wasn't obvious The religious leaders questioned Jesus' authority because they hated it. Here's the thing. Hatred towards 
the authority of God is at the heart of every sin. Hatred towards the authority of God is at the heart of our sin nature. Every time we sin, we are saying, who gave you this authority over our lives? This is my life. How dare you say, I can't or I have to? Man in his sin nature hates the authority of God. So in that sin nature, this re, these religious leaders asked, by what authority do you do these things? By what authority? Right? And we learned last week that they didn't ask this honestly. Right? They didn't want to have a real conversation with Jesus. They didn't ask expecting an answer to out by what authority he was truly claiming. They just wanted Jesus gone. So that's the context of this parable. Right? Jesus' authority is being questioned by the religious leaders. And there's this interaction between the religious leaders and Jesus. That's the context. Quickly, I kind of want to go over the pattern of this parable. And I've noticed as I've studied parables uh, throughout the years that there's a common pattern to a lot of Jesus' parables. Not all, and I wouldn't even say most of Jesus' parables, but a lot of Jesus' parables have a, a very common pattern. I notice it starts off very believable, right? And, and I would say that, that that's the believable part of his parable. And from there, it gets kind of unbelievable, right? Unthinkable. It goes from the believable part to the, the unbelievable part. But then he raises the stakes even higher in his parables, and it gets to a, a ridiculously unbelievable part that's so unbelievable, it provokes anger or emotion. And finally, in a lot of Jesus' parables, there's like this Nathan the prof, uh, prophet moment, right, where Nathan is talking to David and says, you are the man, right? where you, you kind of realize, hey, this parable is about me. So that's going to be kind of the outline that I'm going to be going over this parable. Right? The first part, the believable part. Then there's the unbelievable part. Then the ridiculously unbelievable part that's so unbelievable it provokes anger. And finally, the, the Nathan the prophet moment. So let's start with the the believable part. Luke chapter 20, verse 9 says this. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the, the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. It's a completely normal event. Everyday life, this is very believable in this day and age. It would be like me saying, a man went to Save Mart yesterday and bought a watermelon. Or it was a windy day at Hatchapi. (laughs) So windy that I saw a trampoline roll across the front yard. Or last winter, it snowed a sixteenth of an inch and the whole town closed down. But maybe even better, it would be like someone saying, a man from L.A. came to Golden Hills 
bought a house, fixed it up, and rented it out to tenants. It's pretty normal everyday life. We, we would think of that as being a story of, of uh, not that far-fetched. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants, right? This was very normal. Wealthy landowners owned uh, the mass majority of the rural areas in the Roman Empire, right? including parts of Galilee. And very often, these wealthy landowners would rent out their land to tenant farmers, usually for a percentage of their harvest. You come farm the land that I own and and just give me a percentage of the profits that you make. They would write out a contract. It'd be legally binding. And this is maybe a little bit of a special case because verse 9 says, this man, the landowner, planted the vineyard or planted a vineyard. In other words, he did all the hard work, then let it out to tenants. He means the owner did all the hard work, and even Matthew and Mark add that he put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower, says Mark uh, 12.1. Right? This landowner did all the hard work, then found some tenant farmers to maintain it. Tenant farmers were normally poor and needed work. And so uh, these tenant farmers were extremely blessed. First, they had work. They had employment, which was a much bigger deal back then than it is today. It's still hard if if you're unemployed. But secondly, this landowner did all the hard work already, and they just had to come in and maintain what he already started. This is it would have been normal. Uh, verse 9 says he went into another country along, uh, for a long while. This landowner left and went to another country, probably where he lived. Told, again, very normal. When the time came, he sent servants to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. This landowner sent a servant, in other words, probably a very trusted servant. If he was wealthy enough to own this much land. He probably had a few slaves and, and a few servants. Um, and, and some of the servants were, were very faithful, loyal, and trusted. And those servants would be the ones that he would send out to do business. So this was probably a very faithful, loyal, trusted servants that dealt with his business and money. And the servant was going to collect the greed upon amount that the landowner uh, uh, wrote a contract out with the tenant farmers. Right? Completely normal, everyday life, until we get to the unbelievable part. Look at verse 10 again. When the time came, he, the landover, landowner, sent a servant, a trusted servant, to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him, the servant, and sent him away empty-handed. This would have been unthinkable in this day and age, right? Because usually tenant farmers had a lot of respect for the landowners, right? First of all, the landowner was the one that gave them employment. But secondarily, right, landowners were wealthy and had great status in society. Tenant farmers were usually poor and lower class, So it would be hard to believe that a a tenant farmer would beat up a trusted servant of a landowner. 
especially because the landowner had the means to do something about it. But it gets even crazier. Look at verse 11 again. Or look at verse 11. And he, being the landowner, sent another servant. One commentator said this, Landowners always had power, socially and legally, to enforce their will on the tenants. A few even reportedly had, like, hit squads to deal with troublesome tenants. In other words, a a landowner had the means and the power and the legal right to get rid of these tenants that beat up one of his trusted servants and sent him away empty-handed. But instead of exercising that right, this landowner gave the tenants another chance to pay what they owed. And he sent another servant. That would have been unbelievable. The crowd was probably thinking at this moment, no self-respecting landowner would be that gracious. Verse 11 again. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. This landowner, this gracious landowner, sent three different servants, hoping these tenants would reason with his servants. But all three were beaten, treated shamefully, and cast out empty-handed. Matthew and Mark even add that he sent a fourth servant, that these evil tenants killed. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And if you were in the crowd hearing this and and knew the context of what Jesus was saying, you'd be like, no, that would never happen. There's no landowner that would do something like that. Well, that leads us to the third part of this parable. The part of the parable that is so ridiculously unbelievable that it provokes anger. And it provokes emotion. Verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. At this point, the crowd is probably getting set, right? upset. Why would this man put his own son in danger for these tenants? At this point... The ancient hearers, rich or poor, right, would have seen these tenants as, as wicked, as, as evil and in the wrong, and the landowner as, as kind and patient and even gracious. So gracious, actually, that they're probably starting to think that he is, like, foolishly gracious. Right? This landowner so badly wanted to give these tenants a chance to make things right, that he would put his own son in danger. His own beloved son at risk. The crowd, hearing the story, probably started thinking that he's gone too far now. He's gone too far. No one would put their beloved son at risk for these evil people. Verse 14. But when the tenants saw him, the son of the landowner, when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, 
This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. At this point, the crowd was horrified. And actually, we know that the crowd was upset because Jesus asked a question. Look at the second part of verse 15. What then will the the owner of the vineyard do to them? And the people answered in Matthew. Matthew 21, verse 41 says this. He will put those wretches to a miserable death. They are upset. Jesus' story has just become ridiculously unbelievable. And it made the crowd angry. How could a man be so gracious and how could these tenants be so wicked? And they're probably asking, like, what type of story is this? What's your point? (laughs) He had his own son killed trying to reason with these people. Well, this finally leads to the Nathan the prophet moment. But before we get to the, the Nathan the prophet moment, I want to go through the parable once again, one more time. And the reason is, is I want us to grasp the deeper meaning of this parable. Right? All parables have a deeper spiritual lesson that, that, that the parable is paralleling, right? That's where the word parable comes from. It's a, a parallel meaning. It's a simple life story that parallels a deeper spiritual lesson. Right? We understand the simple story now. It's very understandable. Even the, the ancient hearers would have understand it. The crowds would have understand exactly what Jesus was saying within the story. But what was the parallel, deeper spiritual lesson? What is this parable illustrating, in other words? Well, really, the key to understand the, the deeper spiritual lesson of this parable is understanding one key word, vineyard. What would the hearers of that day understood when Jesus said vineyard? Well, the Jewish crowd, knowing their Old Testament pretty well, when they heard vineyard, would automatically have thought Israel. Israel. Jesus is talking about Israel. As soon as he started talking about this vineyard. And that's because there's a number of Old Testament passages that relate Israel to a vineyard. Isaiah 27.2 says, In that day a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it. Right? The vineyard is, is Israel in this, in this verse, and God is the keeper. Right? He's the owner. He's the landowner. Jeremiah 2.21 says, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. Psalms 80 verse 8 says, you brought a vine out of Egypt, right? You brought a vine out of Egypt. Who who is that talking about? Who was brought out of Egypt? Israel. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. And then verse 14 says this, turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. Again, Israel is obviously this vine that becomes a vineyard, and God is the one that owns it. He is the landowner that planted this vine and vineyard. But most famously, Isaiah 5 is probably what everyone was thinking as soon as Jesus said vineyard. Isaiah 5, 2 through 5 says this, 
He dug it up and cleared it of stone and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. And then verse 7 clearly says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delights in, or delighted in. Right? So the Old Testament has made it very clear that the vineyard is Israel, and the owner of the vineyard is God. So let's look through this parable again with that in mind and see if we can see the deeper lesson that's being taught here. Uh, let's start with the believable part. Verse 9, right? Luke 20, verse 9, the believable part of this parable. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. A man planted a vineyard. Right? The crowd automatically would have thought, that man's God. The vineyard is Israel. Matthew twenty-one thirty-three even adds that, that there is a master of a house or the, the landowner who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. He quotes Isaiah 5, Jesus, in this parable. So there's no doubt that the vineyard is a nation of Israel, and the landowner is God. But who are these tenants within this parable? Right? Who did God put in charge of his, his vineyard? Right? Well, who did God put in charge of Israel? To maintain it, to take care of it. The tenants are the religious leaders. But just like the parable... We have to understand that God did all the work, right? I mean, think of Israel. He planted Israel, right? He picked Abraham and promised him a great nation. He, he grew Abraham's family by taking them to Egypt so that they would multiply and multiply and multiply with the protection of Egypt. He brought them out of Egypt through the wilderness and he planted them in the promised land. He even cleared the nations before he planted them in the promised land. God picked Israel. He grew Israel. He prepared a good land for Israel. And he planted Israel. God did all the hard work. Then he delegated his authority to the religious leaders of Israel. He gave them the responsibility to take care of God's nation. He even gave them instructions. He gave them the law. He said, this is how you do it. So again, the landowner is God, the vineyard is Israel, and the tenants are the religious leaders of Israel. That's the believable part. Let's look at the unbelievable part. Verse 10. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat it and treated him shamefully. And he sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. So if the, the vineyard or the vineyard is, is Israel and the landowner is God, the tenants are the religious leaders, who are these trusted servants that the landowner keeps sending? Right? Yeah, I heard it. All commentators agree that they're the prophets. 
And that's because the prophets are the servants of God, right? Bringing a message from God. And just about every prophet was persecuted by Israel. Elijah was driven into the wilderness by the king in 1 Kings 19. Right? Isaiah was probably sawed in half, according to tradition. Right? Zechariah was stoned to death in 2 Chronicles 24. The writers of Hebrews summarizes the history of the prophets by saying they were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about the desert and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Hebrews eleven thirty eight. Even in the New Testament, the prophet John the Baptist was persecuted by the religious leaders before ultimately getting his head chopped off by King Herod. Stephen, prophet in his own right in some ways, before being stoned by the religious leaders, accused the religious leaders of being stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Acts 7, 51 through 52. Right? Yet, God patiently and persistently sent messenger after messenger to warn and reason with Israel's leaders. Yet the leaders of Israel rejected God by beating and persecuting and even killing his messengers. Prophet after prophet, servant after servant, Right? The landowner's servants in this parable are God's prophets. Right? And the religious leaders, according to Matthew 21, 35, took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another, until finally he sent his own beloved son to them, saying, they will respect my son. And this takes us to the third part of this parable. The ridiculously unbelievable part that's so unbelievable, it provoked anger in the hearers. Verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. They don't respect my servants. They obviously don't respect me. Maybe, just maybe, they will respect my son. Verse 14. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Right? Of course, this points to the crucifixion. It's actually a prophecy of what is just about to happen. The parable says that, that they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. In a very short time, the religious leaders will hand Jesus over to the Romans, and the Romans will take him out of Jerusalem and kill him by crucifying him. Listen, this, this, this parable is unbelievable. It's so unbelievable that it provoked anger in the hearers. 
But here's the craziest thing about this parable. It's exactly what happened and it's exactly what was about to happen. The religious leaders were just as wicked as these tenants. And God, and God was just as gracious as the landowner. So gracious that he would sacrifice his own son, his own beloved son, for these wicked people. One commentator said this, I just thought this was good, about Jesus' parable. The allegory is rooted in God's love. In face of Israel's hard-heartedness, he persisted and persisted and persisted. One prophet after another was abused. But instead of turning his back on the world, God continued sending servant after servant after servant. Rebuffs, insults, beatings did not stop him. And finally, he sent his son. And then this commentator actually quotes Spurgeon, which I thought was so appropriate, talking about God's son, right? Talking about Jesus. If you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. Amazing. This finally leads us to the last part, which is the Nathan the prophet moment. Right? Jesus ends this parable by asking a question. Verse 15, the second part. When the, or what then will the owner of the vineyard uh, do to them? What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And Matthew, the, the leaders at this point, had no idea that the parable was about them. And so they answered Jesus in Matthew twenty one forty one, He will put those riches to a, to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to another tenant who will give him the fruits in their season. Right. In other words, they said these evil tenants deserve to die. The religious leaders, ironically, were demanding justice on these evil tenants. Luke uh, chapter 20, verse 16, uh, Jesus answers his own question and says pretty much the same thing. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. In other words, the patience of the landowner will eventually run out. And wrath will fall on the, the evil tenants. Right? And this landowner will use all of his wealth and power to destroy the tenants. And he'll be legally justified in doing so. Just as a side note, he says he, he will come and destroy those tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. Who, who are the others that he gives the vineyard to? Well, the Gentiles, specifically the apostles, though, as leaders, right? And Jesus passes his authority to the apostles, so much so that the apostles were, were able to perform miracles authoritatively 
right? And they're able to speak Scripture. And that's why we listen to the Scripture they spoke as they went out to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were grafted in to this, this vineyard, right? The religious leaders demanded justice because they didn't know this parable was about them. But at some point, just like Nathan and David, at some point, Matthew 21, 45 says, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Right? They said, wait a second. I could just imagine one of them. Do you think he's talking about us? Is he saying God's that mad at us? Verse 16, they get it. When they heard this, they figured out that they were talking about, Jesus was talking about the religious leaders. They said, surely not. Surely not. This can't be us. I think he's talking about us. Right? But unlike David, when Nathan confronted David, right? Nathan, the prophet, tells this parable, the story. David gets so mad. He's ready to demand justice on on the guy that's in the story. And and Nathan the prophet looks straight at him and says, you are the man. Unlike David, they didn't repent. Instead, Matthew 21, 46 says they, they were seeking to arrest him. And Luke 20, 19 says the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour. I want you to think about that for a second. The first time I've, I've taught through this parable and through this portion of Scripture. And it hit me how blinded these men were with hatred. Right? They want Jesus gone. They wanted him dead. But here is a man, Jesus, who has done some crazy miracles at this point. If you read the sermon last week, we went over some of them. He obviously comes with the authority of God and he speaks he speaks as if God himself is speaking. He speaks as if his words are equal to Scripture. And he tells this story. In the end of the story, he says, God is going to come and destroy these tenants. And you figure out, hey, we're the tenants. right? right? God's that mad at us. And instead of... Taking one second and, and, and thinking, what if he's right? right what, if, what if he's speaking truth? They just wanted him dead. They decided we need to kill this man. And Luke twenty nineteen says, the scribes and chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour. We got to get rid of him. We hate his message, and we hate God claiming authority over our lives. So what's the application of this passage? Well, first of all, I want you to grasp this. God's grace is enormous. Think of that landowner. His grace is abounding. So much so that the people that heard this story would have thought he was foolish. Patiently and persistently offering reconciliation and forgiveness 
and offering reconciliation, forgiveness, one servant after another servant, till he says, you know what? I'll even offer up my own beloved son. I'm going to ask a question. Have you been ignoring the servants that God's been sending to you? If you're not a, a Christian this morning and you have relatives or friends that come to you with this message that God wants reconciliation, he wants, he wants to, 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 to mend the relationship, he wants you to ask for forgiveness so he can forgive you graciously. Have you ignored the servants giving you that message? Or maybe you're a Christian and you're stuck in some kind of sin and you have, you have servants coming, you have, have people coming and saying, you need to turn, submit to the Lordship of God, turn away from that sin and, and turn to, to Jesus and follow him. He'll forgive you. Are you ignoring God's servants? Don't. His grace is enormous. But this leads to the second application point. God's patience will one day run out. God's patience will one day run out. Listen, those that do not submit to his lordship, the authority of God, and say, you are Lord of my life, will be destroyed. One day God will stop offering grace and he will enforce justice. And Jesus, look, I get this. Every time, part of me wants to get up here and not talk about God's wrath and God's justice. But I wouldn't be doing disservice to scripture and Jesus' own words. Listen to what he says in verse 17. But he looked directly at them. He set his gaze on them, some of your translation says. He's like, listen to this part. What then is it that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Right? The the builders are the religious leaders that are rejecting Jesus. Those that reject Jesus. What's going to happen to the cornerstone? The cornerstone is Jesus. Verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Listen, God's grace is amazing. But we need to hear Jesus' warning too. At some point, God's patience will run out. And for those that refuse to submit to the authority of God... At some point, God's justice will be demanded. So I want to end with that question. Has God sent servants to you? I I loved how this one commentator ended this passage. He said this, This is a message of love and warning. Though delivering it brought the Lord not joy, but rather, rather intense sorrow, moving him to tears, Luke 19.41. Predictably, but tragically, the leaders rejected his warning and redoubled their efforts to kill him. That same warning applies to everyone, 
either submit to Christ as Lord and Savior or be crushed by him in his judgment. Rejecting Jesus Christ is the most tragic choice anyone can ever make. We all love John 3.16, right? I wish we'd keep reading. John 3.36 says this, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Right? God's grace. He's offering it to everyone. Believe in the Son and have eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Listen, if you don't know Jesus this morning, put your faith in him. Put your faith in him. Cry out for grace. A gracious landowner, a gracious God that wants to give grace and forgiveness and also submit to his authority. Trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And do it now, before you leave this building. If you want to talk, I'd love to talk with you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you, Lord, for who you are. I thank you that your nature is is to, to be gracious and forgiving, Lord. That when we sin, Lord, that when I sin, when I sin daily, Lord, I know I can come to you and, and grace will abound. That I can ask for forgiveness, repent, and turn. Turn away from my sin and turn to, towards you, Lord. Like Lord, I thank you for that. God, I pray for anyone in in this room that does not know you, Lord, that they don't leave here without talking to someone, a friend, a relative, uh, a pastor, Lord. They don't leave here until they have cried out for for forgiveness, Lord, and they've put their their trust in you, right? And what your son did on the cross, dying on the cross for their sins, being raised on the third day to the Lord of lords and King of kings, Lord. God, I pray for that. I thank you for this message. I thank you for this parable. I thank you for the warning. I also thank you for your grace. In your son's name, amen.